Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer challenges us to look at what has preeminence in our life. In other words, what has the top spot, the first place? Who is the icon in our lives? We begin our journey in the Bible in Colossians chapter 1. Today's message is called The Preeminence of Christmas. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. Just something about those jingle bells and those... uh those other large church bells that play that just remind us of Christmas time. We love hearing that sound. We, we love Christmas music. For many of us, we're listening to Christmas music from Thanksgiving all the way to New Year's. And some of you, uh, other people, you'll have them playing year-round. It's just how you do. Uh, we love the Christmas music. Even last night, we were driving around Central Park, looking at the lights there, listening to some Christmas music on the radio. And My family knows that as much as we love Christmas music, there's always one song that comes on when we have some just kind of radio or some kind of mix going on that when it starts playing in our house, it's it's like Pavlov's dog. You know, when I hear it, I begin to salivate and I begin to go into preach mode. And it's a a song that'll come up uh, from the pentatonics, I think, called What Christmas Means to Me. And when, as soon as I hear that, I feel the need to preach, not because it has such a solid Christian message, but because it sort of embodies the spirit of this age. It doesn't ask the question, what does Christmas mean? And it says, this is what Christmas means to me. I declare what truth is. And so I'm not trying to just you know, say every Christmas song you need to sing comes out of the hymn book. But uh, for this one in particular, they're just like, you know, uh, singing about snow and ice and mistletoe. And this is what Christmas means to me, my love. This is what Christmas means to me. And it's just all these external trappings of, of Christmas. And my family knows as soon as I hear that song, I'm going to push pause and be like, you know, it doesn't matter what Christmas means to you. What does it mean to God? You know, what does it mean? And my family rolls their eyes because they know what's going to happen every time that song comes on the radio. And before you brand me as a Scrooge or something else, I love the Christmas season. If you have a Santa in your yard, I'm not going to throw eggs at it. If you sing Jingle Bells, I'm not going to sing off-key in protest. I'm not talking about the other things that you do for Christmas. I'm talking about what is central to your Christmas, what is preeminent in your Christmas. And it's not just what Christmas isn't just what we make of it. Christmas has a, a unique and special meaning to it that for much of the world, even the Christian world, it gets lost in the external trappings that get kind of brought along for the ride. So turn to Colossians chapter 1 this morning. We're going to show why Christ is to be preeminent in our Christmas. And it begins with having Christ preeminent in our life. Preeminent is a word we don't use very often anymore. Eminent, it it goes all the way back to the Roman Catholic days when they would give a certain title to one that they felt was superior. They're cardinals, and they would refer to him as his eminence. It's someone who is a higher rank, somebody who is, a, is of higher position than others. For Christ to be preeminent, therefore, it means that he has a higher rank than anything else in our life. He is before anything else that is eminent. If you, if you understand the rest of the Bible, you understand that Jesus is eminent in all the rest of the Bible and preeminent over all things. Whenever I would teach Bible survey to our students in China. We would always talk about how the Bible is a mountain. The Old Testament looks up at the peak of that mountain, which is Christ, the Gospels. We have four books just about him. 
And beyond that, every book of the Bible points to him. And then if you look at the rest of the New Testament, they're looking back, we're looking back at Jesus Christ, at those gospels. And so Jesus is the very summit of the entire Bible. Hebrews, the first whole half of that book is talking about how Jesus is better than anything else. He's better than the angels because he is a divine king. Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses, he gave you the law. He's a servant of God, but Jesus himself is the son of God. Hebrews talks about how Jesus is greater than Joshua. Joshua led them into the promised land here on earth, but Jesus leads us to glory. How Jesus is a greater high priest than Aaron. Aaron sacrificed animals. Jesus sacrificed himself. So Jesus is greater than. That is the message of the Bible, that Jesus in all things is to be preeminent, that he is to be visible and obvious because he's important to us. And so this morning's message, I make no apologies. This is just a piece of, it's just a commercial. It's a piece of propaganda. I want you to be so impressed with who Jesus is that he is preeminent in your life so that when he is preeminent in your life, he'll be preeminent in the way that you celebrate your Christmas season. So Colossians chapter one, the Bible here in Colossians 1 is going to show us how Jesus is preeminent or first in highest rank in multiple different areas of our life and our expression of worship. First of all, it's that Jesus is preeminent in creation. Go ahead and look at verse 15. Talking about Christ, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created, it says, through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is preeminent on earth. He's preeminent in our creation. The first thing he says is that he is the image of the invisible God. This is a word that means he is the exact representation of God's nature. Being in the image of God doesn't mean that Jesus is like a statue. He's kind of like God. He resembles God. He's sort of like God. That's what we're to be. None of you are gods, but we are to resemble him in how we live and how we behave toward others. But Jesus is the, the Greek word is icon. He is the exact representation of who God is. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. It's a term that would refer to a child being the spit and image of his father. He is his icon. He is his, the very nature. He looks a lot like you because he has your DNA. If your child does not look a lot like you, that's a problem. Your child should look a lot like you. I remember when I got into my teen years, I started to develop a little bit more into looking like a man. My dad would love to pull out his old high school yearbook, and he would say, wow, you look exactly like me. As a kid, I never saw it, you know, but I took his word for it. You look exactly like me, except for maybe those black glasses that everybody wore in the 60s. Um, I looked like my dad, and the reason is because I possessed his DNA. I'm the, ex I'm the exact nature as he is, the exact same substance. And that's what it's saying about Jesus here. He's the very nature of who God is. He is the icon of God. It says also that he is firstborn of creation. This word firstborn it refers to a title or rank often given to the firstborn child. He would be the firstborn. And so they were of the highest rank in the family, one who would go on and eventually be the patriarch of that family. They would inherit all things. For Jesus to be the firstborn of creation by the way, some people will try to tell you that firstborn of creation means that Jesus is the first created being. Do you have a problem with that? If you're, not, if, you, if you're not shaking your head, yes, there is a problem. Jesus is not the first created being. By the way, the Mormons will tell you that. They'll also tell you that he's the half-brother of Lucifer. 
which is a problem, theologically speaking, because Mormonism is not another Christian church. It is a cult. It teaches that Jesus is a created being, that he is not God, that at some point in time, Jesus didn't exist, and then he did. He was created. And they will tell you that this passage says that Jesus, uh, when he came to earth on Christmas, was a, he was a created being, and then he came to earth and all that kind of stuff. Jesus, to be the firstborn, it simply means he is the highest rank, that he is above all other kings of the earth. Psalm uh, 89.27 makes this apparent. God says, I will make him, talking about Christ, I will make him the firstborn, the highest king on the earth. And so when the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, it simply means that he is above all things. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And being the firstborn, all things belong to him. All things have been given to Jesus Christ. This entire world is given to him in his hand. Do we have any other evidence from this very passage, by the way, that Jesus is not a created being, that he didn't just come into existence? Well, right here in our passage, verse 17, what does it say? He is before all things. What does that mean? It means what it says. He was before all things. Jesus said, remember, before Abraham was, I am. Took that title of God the Father upon himself. Before all things, before anything existed, Jesus was here. It speaks of his eternality. Then in Christmas time, I understand what you mean when we say that Jesus Christ is born. Humanly speaking, his humanity, if you will, he took on flesh at that time. His humanity was born. But Jesus himself existed in eternity past with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Remember how John 1.1 begins, in the beginning was the Word. You're meant to think of Genesis 1-1 there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, that time when nothing else existed except for God, Jesus was there. That makes him God. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And so whoever this Word is, he is distinct from the Father. And yet it says, and the Word was God. And so we have a being here who is distinct from the Father and yet co-equal with him. And we later learn in verse 14, we just had it on the screen not too long ago. Verse 14, it says, the word became flesh, became flesh. He took on flesh. That's the Christmas message, that Jesus took on flesh so that God could die in our place. God by himself cannot die. Jesus had to take on flesh so that he could die. That's the Christmas story. Jesus was, as we sing here in the choir, sometimes he was born to die. Colossians 1.16 says, for by him all things were created. There's nothing created that Jesus wasn't, didn't have his hand in created. He says, whether it's in heaven, what's beyond us, or on earth, he says, whether it's something you can see, the visible, or the things you cannot see, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, these are references to angelic beings in different uh, categories of angelic beings and those who fell, demonic beings. God didn't create demons, but he created angels who fell. <clears throat> it says all of those beings are created and they were created through him, through the very power of Jesus himself. And what does it say? For him. Again, as the firstborn of all creation, He's firstborn, so everything belongs to him. The, the earth is the Lord's, the Bible says, and the fullness thereof. All of that belongs to God. The pew you're sitting in belongs to God, not us. Your own body, does it belong to you? Say, I don't want this body anymore. Uh, that body even your, isn't yours. The Bible says you have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Even our bodies don't belong to us. It all belongs to the Lord. It was created for him and through him. And so Jesus existed in creation, didn't we? 
I mean, we see the whole Trinity in creation, don't we? Uh, we have, clearly, the Father was there in creation, but the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in Genesis 1 that the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep, so the Spirit of God is right there in creation. And who do you think God was talking to in Genesis 1.26 when he says, let us make man in our image? Us and our imply that when only God existed, there was yet more than one of him. Why are we Trinitarian? It's because the Bible is. And so God existed in more than one person. When he's speaking to Jesus, let's make us, let's, let's us make man in our image. And so Christ is there in Genesis 1. Christ is in creation in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is, <clears throat> because Jesus is not a created being, because he's eternal, it means he's infinite. And you know what's encouraging about that? That despite the fact that in this earth we have a, a, a spiritual battle between light and dark, between good and evil, I want you to know it's not yin and yang. It's not two equal and opposite forces. Even the evil forces that exist today were created by Jesus. They were angelic beings. And so they have infinitely less power than an infinite God. And so this isn't light and dark, yin and yang. It's not Darth and Luke, you know, some blonde-haired kid and a guy with asthma. It's not that at all. It's not light and dark. It's, it, it's not just equal and opposite. It's more like a dad wrestling his two-year-old. Does that two-year-old really present a challenge for that father? Not typically. Uh, instead, he wrestles. They're generally wrestling and they're having fun, but when the, when, it's, when the father's done, it's done. And that's our spiritual battle. When the father's done with it, it's done. Jesus is that much in control. He is infinite in power because he is not a created being. He created those beings. And one last word about creation. It says, in him, Jesus Christ, he does something special for creation ongoing, doesn't he? What does he do? He holds all things together. The reason atoms and molecules and all these other scientific terms that we forgot about, the reason they hold together, scientists can't explain it. God, the Bible can though. All of us should be flying apart right now, but we're not. Why? Because Jesus holds us together. Furthermore, our, our earth in its ecosystem, who holds that together? Is it mankind? Are we the reason that this earth goes on? We're not. Isn't that comforting? It says, in him all things hold together. Jesus, if, if you're the cause as to whether or not the earth rises and falls, if it's all up to man, then friends, go join Greenpeace, uh, do a bunch of, you know, protest, go take your hand and glue it to an oil painting, you know, like some like to do now. If it all, if it all depends on you and I, friends, we're in a big heap of trouble. But the Bible here says that the whole earth is in his hands and that he holds it together. And if you read the rest of the Bible, is the earth still gonna be here when Jesus comes? It will be. Here's the sad part. When he's done with it, what's he gonna do? Jesus is the one that destroys it. This earth and everything that you see here, look under the Christmas tree. Every present you've got dedicated to a child, you may as well just say consigned to fire someday. I mean, it's not gonna be here forever. I mean, that's a depressing look on Christmas, but it's not gonna be here. There's nothing eternal about this earth, but there's nothing that we can do. I'm not saying be irresponsible, but there's nothing we can do that's going to hasten the end of the earth because Jesus holds it all together. And so go ahead, throw another log on the fire. You're not gonna destroy the ozone layer or you know, whatever it's gonna do. You're okay. We're not gonna get struck by a meteor and, and kill all life on earth. Aliens are not going to evade and destroy mankind. I can even say with absolute authority from Revelation, we're not even going to die in a, in a hail of, of atomic missiles at one another. Is that a sigh of relief? You know, Russia goes crazy and starts launching missiles. Is that gonna happen? I'm telling you right now, we are not gonna be destroyed as a planet 
because of any of these things, because in him all things hold together. That should give you a little bit of joy this Christmas and just be the sigh of relief. <sighs> this earth and its sustenance is not all on me because Jesus is preeminent. Number two, he's preeminent in the church. Verse 18, it says, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn, there's that term again, preeminent one. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Now he's called the head of the body. What is a body? You have a body, I have a body. If it's here today, I presume that your body is alive. Most of you, some of you look like maybe you're not, but uh, your body should be alive. You have a head on that body, and that head gives your body certain signals. It means that the body is a live thing. And what is, he, what is this body called? He is the head of the body. What's the body called? The church. And so the church is a living, breathing organism, a, a gathering of humans together for the, to accomplish the purposes of God. Look what God doesn't call the church. He doesn't call it a building. A church is not a building, it's not a set of services, it's not a religious tradition. A church is a people, it's a body of which Jesus is the head. And so the head of the church being Jesus, what does that mean? It means that in everything we do, we want him to be preeminent. We want him to be preeminent in our preaching. We want him to be preeminent in our singing. We want Jesus to be preeminent in how we spend our money. We want Jesus to be preeminent in how we spend our time. That's also limited, isn't it? So we don't just wanna fritter away our life as a church and our time as a church on just empty things. We want Jesus to be preeminent. What does Jesus want in a church? And that's the question we ask because he's the head. I'll tell you who really gets this and understands this is our Chinese friends because they don't have all the trappings of church like we have here, most of them. They live in house, they, they work in house churches, they serve there, they, they meet wherever they can. And that's why in their Chinese language, we've told you before, they have two words for church. One is a jiao tong, that refers to a building. The other is a jiao hui. That's the term the real Christians use. And they're talking about the church. It means a body of believers assembled together. They get that. We could learn a little bit from our Chinese friends. They, you know, they don't have a whole lot of these extra fun things, but what they do understand is that Jesus is preeminent and that we are here for the gospel. We are here for discipleship. We're here to encourage and strengthen one another. That's what a church is. And in a church where Jesus is preeminent, we understand that. He is the head of our body. And so when we make him the head, it's just we want to make sure that he is happy with all that we're doing. Am I happy? Does that matter? Does it matter if I'm happy in a church? No, what matters is, is Jesus happy with what we're doing? The reason I give is because of Jesus. The reason I serve is because of Jesus. The reason I come to church every Sunday, it's because of Jesus. From my heart, I so honor him in my spirit that from my heart, I long to be here. You know what that means? When I long to be here for Jesus, it means that no human can chase me off from this building. That I don't stop going to a church because I'm offended or somebody bothered me. When I serve from my heart because I so love Jesus that I just wanna give my life to him, it means that no human in my disagreement with them is gonna cause me to, to give up on a ministry. It means that when I give, I so long to show the worthiness of Jesus that I put him in my budget and I, and I give to him and no human's gonna be able to take that away from me. It means I don't stop giving just because I'm upset, I'm mad, I'm frustrated, I disagree with something because my giving isn't to man, is it? It's to God. And when Jesus is preeminent, my giving, my serving, and my attending is not affected by human relationship. It's all entirely based upon whether or not Jesus is preeminent in my heart. And that's a preeminent life. It says, furthermore, that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that everything he might be preeminent. 
So he is his firstborn again here. Again, we remember that it's the Greek word protokos. He's the, he's the first one. He's of the highest rank, the highest position. He's the most important thing. He says, but he's the firstborn here. Now, from the dead. We understand when it says Jesus is the beginning, right? We talked about his eternality. He is from the beginning. Uh, in other words, it's the idea of everything proceeds from him. If you were to draw a line on a piece of paper, you always start with a dot, don't you? You put your pen down, boom. That's Jesus. And then everything that proceeds from that dot in that line comes from that dot, and that's Jesus. He is the, fir he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So Jesus is that dot. He was ris risen from the dead, like we sang about this morning. He rose from the dead. He's the first to rise from the dead. And everybody that rises from the dead arises from the dead because of him. Jesus, because Jesus rose from the dead, now I know that I can too. I am the resurrection of life. If Jesus lives, you also can live if you're in him, if you're born again Christian. So he is the beginning, firstborn from the dead. Everything proceeds from him. When you're the beginning of something, he's the foundation of the church, he's the, he's the first of those resurrected. Uh, when you are the first of something, we remember that everywhere else in society, don't we? You go to Chick-fil-A, who does everybody in Chick-fil-A know about? Truett Cathy, okay? Everybody, everybody remembers him. His face is everywhere. He's talked about. His legacy is remembered. If you go to Liberty University, what do you see there? Old Jerry Falwell, not junior. <laughs> that was some trouble, wasn't it? Uh, but Jerry Falwell Sr., the guy that I grew up watching on TV before I went to church, my mom would always have Thomas Road Baptist Church, you know, and Jerry Falwell talking about Liberty University. And two of my kids graduated from there, and we went there, and we visited Liberty, and we toured the campus, and we noticed that because he was the founder, his face was everywhere. I mean, sometimes like giant, like communist propaganda posters. I mean, they're like, they're huge. Like they remember this guy because he's the founder. We took the tour and, and they still have his office exactly how he left it. Did you realize that? The, the guy, when he died, he was still working at his desk and he just collapsed on his desk and they picked him up and they carried him out and they left everything the way it was and it's like they glassed the room in. You can't get in there now. But they, they do that because they recognize Jerry Falwell as far as like Liberty University goes, he was preeminent to them. He was the founder. He's the dot that everything proceeded from. The Bible says in a far greater way, that is Jesus for us. We don't forget the dot that we came from that Jesus is the founder, the originator, the protocost, the preeminent one, the one of the highest rank and position. And so because of that, Jesus keeps popping up everywhere we go. He's in our gospel, he's in our singing, he's in our preaching, he's in everything that we do when we leave this church. People are mocking you as they did the original Christians when they called them little Jesuses, you Christians, you little Christs. We see number three here that Jesus is also preeminent in the gospel message. Verse 19 says, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is the message of the gospel. By the way, Colossians 1.19, it begins by putting to rest a skeptic argument that the Bible never claimed Jesus to be God. Did the Bible claim for Jesus to be God or did Christians just make him Jesus or make Jesus God? The Bible over and over again claims Jesus was God. I can give you a whole bunch of verses. How long do you want to be here today? Okay, well, we'll just look at this one then. Okay, Colossians 1.19 says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That word fullness, it, it's the word pleroma. It means the, all that makes up God, God. It means full overflowing. All that makes God, God was in this container, Jesus. It's the idea of, of filling something and it's just overflowing it. 
And when Jesus was here on earth, we see that the the deity of, of Christ was just overflowing from him, don't we? He wasn't just some average teacher. Sir, he taught with authority, but what else did he do? He walked on water, he calmed the wind and the waves, he healed people, he fed 5,000 from a kid's sack lunch. He raised people from the dead. So the, the, the deity of, of God, the fullness, that all that makes God God is in Christ bodily. And so Jesus is no less God than the Father. And that's important to say because there are religions out there which will try to give Jesus a little bit of credit, but not all credit. I was talking to some Jehovah's Witnesses who are known for saying Jesus is not God, and I was sharing Christ with them one day, and, and I just said, well, what do you all do with Isaiah 9-6? You know, a common verse around Christmas time: unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his, his name shall be called what? Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I said, what do you, who is that talking about? They said, Jesus. I was like, well, that was easy. <laughs> they said, yeah, but he's Mighty God. What do you mean by that? Well, he's not almighty God. You see, there's, there's almighty God, and that's the Father. And Jesus, he's just kind of like mighty God. He's sort of, like, sort of not as God as God is. Is that what this passage is saying? It says, for in him the fullness, everything that makes God the Father God, is Jesus. The fullness of Godhead dwells in him bodily. And because of this, the Bible says, he is able to reconcile all things back to the Father. That because Jesus is God, his sacrifice was therefore infinite, which is good because our crime against God was also infinite, wasn't it? We've talked before, why is hell eternal? Why doesn't God just burn us for a little while and let us go to heaven when we're done? Because our offense against God is against an infinite God. Like I said, you can punch me, not much is going to happen. I will be very disappointed with you, though, if you try that. You know, you go punch a policeman, you're going to be in a lot bigger trouble, won't you? You go to punch the president, you're going to get shot, okay, because you have offended a higher office. What if the office that we offended is an infinite office? It's an infinite punishment. And so because of that, we need an infinite Sacrifice an infinite atonement, and that is only found in Jesus. So for Jesus to have an infinite atonement, he has to be God, which is eternal, and which is, uh, it just has an infinite atonement. So it says Jesus reconciles all things back to the Father. It means a change of relationship. The same word was used in 1 Corinthians 7 to describe a divorced couple. If you've ever been through a divorce, you've ever seen a divorce, they can get ugly, can't they? There's hostility, there's anger, there's resentment, there's a lack of trust. You tend, you know, it leads to a separation. You're living in different homes. It's a, it's a painful, ugly thing. 1 Corinthians 7 says, if they reconcile, he's talking about that, that couple who divorced at one time were hostile to each other and then they come back together and they resume a close intimate relationship and they're living together again and they're you know, drinking out of the same milk jug and using the same milk, uh, mailbox all over again. That reconcile, that's the word that the Bible uses here of us with God. That at one time, we, we were hostile to God, that God was mad at us. We always talk about how God loves everybody and he does. But do you know the Bible also says that God is mad against sin? That God doesn't feel lightly about our sin, that God hates that sin. And so we were hostile to God, but Jesus made, brokered, if you will, a deal with God to make peace with us. Through his own sacrifice, Jesus being an infinite God can take infinite amount of sins from an infinite number of people and make it right with God. And that's the gospel message. That's only found in Christ. Romans 10, 9 says that we, we become a part of that sacrifice by confessing Jesus as Lord and saying, yep, I believe that. 
I believe the message of Jesus. I believe he came to earth to die in my place. I believe he was God. I believe he lived the perfect life. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe he rose on the, from the dead on the third day. And I believe that he's the only way back to God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. I believe that, and I confess him. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Confessing Jesus as Lord means we don't just acknowledge that he is God out there, somebody's God, or that he is powerful. Confessing Jesus as Lord means he is my Lord. I allow him I recognize him as the rightful Lord and sovereign of my life and what he says is truth and what he says is right and he is preeminent in my heart and life. I get off the throne of my heart. My life is not about glorifying me now. My life is about glorifying him. He is my Lord. The Bible says that kind of person is saved. He is central to our gospel message. By the way, that is the gospel message. It's about Jesus and it's about being made right with God. It's, the, the gospel message is not primarily a gospel about heaven. If Jesus is preeminent in the gospel, then it's about him and what he did to make us right with God. But often in the church, can sometimes we make the gospel just about heaven? Are you 100% certain if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? Would you like to go to heaven? Heaven's a great place. I'm going to heaven. Would you like to go to heaven and see your family? Would you like to go to heaven where Kentucky basketball games, we always win? Would you like to go to heaven where you can eat brisket and never get fat and you can eat the high, celebrate Christmas and the holidays? Won't that be great? Would you like to go to heaven? And, and we've found as a church that we get a lot more traction with an unsaved heart if we start appealing to their flesh rather than their spirit. We appeal to their flesh. Would you like to go to a place that's just gonna be great? You think this is great? It's gonna be even better then. Would you like to go there? Great. Repeat this mantra, I mean this prayer after me. Even if your heart isn't in it, just say what I say. And if the words, you can get them to escape your mouth, God owes you heaven. Is that the gospel message? Friends, I'm telling you, that is not, if that is all you've done, can I tell you, you need to re-examine whether or not you're truly a believer. If all you did is you repeated a prayer because you wanted to escape hell and go to heaven. The gospel is Jesus is preeminent that we have sinned, that Jesus is good, and that by trusting in him alone, repenting of our sins, changing our attitude. I used to think sin was great. I'm gonna pursue it. Now, having seen Jesus and what it cost Jesus to pay for that sin, I'm like, ugh, I hate that sin. I wanna stay away from that sin. My flesh still longs for it, but my spirit says I hate it. And there's been a change of spirit and attitude towards sin in my life. I've changed my mind. And God, who I used to think was boring, I only come to church on Christmas and Easter because my parents dragged me here. You know, I used to think God, who was just boring and irrelevant to my life, now I find him highly relevant and I long to be in his presence. I wanna worship, I wanna give, I wanna serve, I wanna be a part of all that he is because I'm found in him. He is now preeminent in my life. That is a gospel message that the world doesn't care for much. But that is the true gospel message. Number four, we're gonna see that Jesus is to be preeminent in our life. And first thing he does is he reminds us of where we used to be. And this, this is true of a lot of us here. Verse 21, what we used to be. He says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. This is what a Christian was. By the way, this is not who a Christian is. If you are still alienated and hostile in mind toward God and doing evil deeds, can I tell you, the Bible doesn't give you assurance that you're a born-again believer. Alienated here means that you're isolated from God. It would describe, you remember the story of creation, Adam and Eve. God created them. They sinned against him. God is upset with their sin. He's mad at their sin. He's going to alienate them. He still loves them. 
He still provides an animal to die in their place and covers them with its skin, but he still has to cast them out of the garden. They are alienated from God. They're isolated from him and isolated from his life. That's what alienated means, that, we, uh, that we're not with God and we could never get ourselves back to God. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, man could not ascend into heaven. There is no stairway to heaven. There's no good works that'll get us to heaven. There's nothing we can do to appease God with our good works, which God sees as filthy rags. So Jesus had to come to us. That's the message of Christmas, that because we couldn't come to God, Jesus came to us. This is what we celebrate. So he said, we were also hostile in mind that at one time we were resentful of God and all that he stood for. We didn't like all of God's rules. We didn't like the things that God put upon us. My children, you know, who have lived in our home most of their life, I'd say all their life, but you know, they've, they've been with us a long time and you know, when we worship God and we sing about God and Jesus is, you know, I hope preeminent in our celebration of holidays, but now as they're getting older and they're adults, they're going out into the world and they're discovering that you know what, the world, not everybody loves Jesus. Did you know not everybody here in Ashland, Kentucky even loves Jesus? My daughter here, she got a job out in the, in the area and she's been sharing Christ on the job. And she'll share Christ, and you know what she's discovering? There's been times she'll come home in tears because she is sorrowful over the lost estate of her friends and coworkers there at this new job. She's shared the gospel with witches. Yes, we have witches here in Ashland. And she's shared the gospel with them. And some of these people have even gone as far as to say, you know, I've read the Bible, but I learned everything I needed to learn from the Bible from reading the 10 commandments. And the first commandment, what is it? Do you all know? <laughs> you know? You shall have no other gods before me. And she said, that's all I need to know about God is that he is a selfish God. She's in, and went on to say that, this, that uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, there are other gods and they deserve to be worshiped. And your God just wants it all for himself. Make no mistake about it. We hang out a lot with Christians, but the world is hostile in mind to the gospel. But it doesn't mean we don't share. But that's where we used to be, hostile in mind. We got offended when we would read God's word. We didn't like what God said about morality. We didn't like what it said about the darkness of our heart. And so we were hostile in mind toward it. That's where we used to be. He says, we used to be also in a state of verse 21, doing evil deeds. This is what we did before we came to Christ, that there's a certain fruit that grows out of an unsaved heart. The heart is the root and what grows from that root are unsaved kind of behaviors and activities. You know, as a believer, we have something called the fruit of the Spirit. It's the stuff that grows naturally out of a heart that's rooted in Christ. And what does that fruit of the Spirit look like? Love, joy. Okay, joy ain't happiness. Joy is that you can be joyful even in hard situations. Joy, you know, patience, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and all these things. Those are the things that are ours and increasing as a believer. It shows that you are rooted in Christ and that you're submitted to the control of the Holy Spirit in you. But did you know in that same passage, Galatians 5, it also talks about that there's fruit from an unsaved life, that there are the works of the flesh that are manifest, that, that are visible in your life. If you're an unbeliever, these will be yours and in increasing. He says the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. He says sexual immorality. That's a, that incorporates a lot of things. You're living together before marriage and you think it's fine. You know, you, you, your immorality, it's any kind of unsanctioned sexual relationship, adultery, homosexuality. He says uh, impurity, sensuality, you know, just talking about how we're just living for the senses. We're all about what we can see, feel, touch, taste, hear. 
It would involve things like pornography and you just, you just long for it and you love it. It's just, it's very, you're just into the sensual nature of things. Idolatry. Now, most of y'all probably don't have Baal statues in your home, I'm guessing. But idolatry is anything that we place in a higher rank when Jesus isn't preeminent and there's something that we love more than Jesus. We live for it, we spend more time with it, we talk more about it. It's, it's an idol of our heart. He says, how about these? Sorcery, anybody, any sorcerers here today? No? Okay. Sorcery, though, is the Greek word pharmakia. Sounds like what? Pharmacy. It's talking about those who would utilize drugs to get into a higher plane of existence and often during that time would commune with demons. He says enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, all of these things. Uh, enmity, these are attitudes of hate towards others. Strife is when we allow that resentful bitterness we have toward others to come out and we start talking and we start you know, fighting with them. Oh, how dare you? And we just, that's strife. He says jealousy, we understand that. You shouldn't have something if I don't have it. It's self-centeredness. Uh, fits of anger that you are prone to just kind of explode in anger and flash in anger about things. You're known as an angry person. Uh, rivalries and dissension. It's the word schisma. We get the word schism. You know, schism. You read about that in history a long time ago and forgot about it. You know, the great schism between the East and the West church broke into the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic church in the West. That schism, it means that we are schismatic, that where we go, we tend to create divisions between people. We like to create an us and them dichotomy. And so we will talk to people. Oh, can you believe that? Oh, those guys over here. I like the church on the left over here. You guys are my friends. You see all those guys on the right? Oh, we don't like them, do we? We don't like what they live for. We don't like how they dress. We don't like what they believe in. Uh, we don't, you know, and they're dividing up the church in particular. The Bible says, those are all considered works of the flesh. So what? He says, this is how you used to be. Furthermore, in Galatians 5, it says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, not that you've ever done it, but that you live in a practiced way of life, this characterizes who you are. He says, I warn you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the works of the flesh. If you look at this list and go, that's yeah, pretty much me most of the time. Sometimes I'm a nice guy around Christmas, you know, but the rest of the time, I'm kind of this way. The Bible says such person does not inherit the kingdom of God, that we've got we to look at our heart and say, is there a reality? Is Jesus truly preeminent in my heart? Well, verse five is God's goal for us. When Christ is preeminent, we will be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Holy. It means that you are set apart for God, that in your heart, you wanna be set aside for a special purpose. You have holy things in your house, don't you? There's things that only you use. There's clothes that you will not let your younger daughters wear because that is just yours, ladies. Uh, or men, there's certain tools that only daddy gets to use. It's set apart for my purposes. Uh, every one of us, I hope, has a toothbrush, yes? You got toothbrushes, any toothbrushers out there? Uh, if not, I know a good dentist. Toothbrushes, they're holy to you. Do you just let any old neighbor come in and somebody spend a night at your house like, oh, you forgot your toothbrush? Here, use mine. Anybody? No, you're like, this is holy for me. Your husband comes in and says, hey, honey, there's a real buildup of junk around the battery terminals, a bunch of acid and stuff. Mind if I borrow your toothbrush real quick? I'm just gonna go ahead and file that down with the toothbrush. Hey, mom, I gotta clean my sneakers. Can I borrow your toothbrush? Go ahead, honey, you know where it's at. And just take it and clean up those muddy old sneakers from football practice, you good with that? No, that toothbrush is set aside, it's holy, it's just for you. As soon as it touches a sneaker, one time, is that going in your mouth? 
It's not. That's what it means to be holy. There's a longing in your heart to be set aside for God for his purposes. And I'll tell you this, with just the years I've been in ministry, something I've noticed more than anything, God favors holiness over talent. How much God uses you for successful ministry is directly related to how holy you are, how set apart for God you are, that you're not tainted with the world. You're not allowing the world, you know, you're not out in the world, you know, using your life scrubbing sneakers in battery acid, you know, battery terminals. And then expecting to be put back in the mouth of God. God criticized the Pharisees for the same thing. He says, you wash the outside of the cups, everybody looks and he goes, oh, look at that, you look so beautiful. Uh, But he says, but on the inside, you're, you're dirty. You're not going to eat from a dirty cup. You ever done that? You know, there's one time I was drinking a glass of water and I I start looking up there and there was like some milk that had curdled and like stuck in the corner and the dishwasher didn't get it. Do you think I just kept on drinking that snow globe? I set that guy down. I was like, this is gross. This, This glass is no longer holy. It's not clean and set apart for me. So that's what God wants. Blameless is what we are on the outside. That we're we're without blemish, without spot. God wants us to always be examining our heart and life. It's a word that would describe an animal sacrifice. You didn't just give God your worst. You would always give him your best. And so if you, you wouldn't just be like, hey, it's time for sacrifice again this year. What animal do we get? There's a sheep over there. He can barely walk and he's got the mange. Let's give God that one. No, God says, you're gonna give me the best of the best. And so that's what God expects from us. He says he wants us to be blameless. Then he says above reproach, it's how others see our life and testimony, that no one can make accusation. How dare you? You call yourself a Christian and you do this? That we're above reproach. This is what it looks like when Christ is the center of our life, that we long to be holy, we long to be set apart from him. We don't see it as a frustration or a hindrance. We long to be there. We want to be in a place of usability with God. And so we are holy, we are blameless, and we're above reproach. This is what it looks like for Christ to be at the center of your life. Why did we spend so much time on that? Because when Christ is preeminent in your heart, he'll be preeminent in your celebration of Christmas. Because he is first, he is protokos, he is of highest rank, highest position in your heart and life, and you wouldn't imagine taking a holiday which is dedicated to Christ and his glory and his worship, and then just use it for secular purposes only, just for my, my sense of holiday enjoyment, my fun, my uh, nostalgia, that Jesus is more to you than that. Now, don't get all upset. You go ahead and watch White Christmas. I'm going to Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, all those fun stuff. You want to drink eggnog? Go ahead. It will make you fat. Um, But go ahead. I'm not against eggnog. I'm not against you putting up garland. I'm not anti-Christmas tree. I'm not even up here preaching anti-Santa here. I'm just saying those are the external trappings of Christmas. But when you look at how you celebrate Christmas, is Jesus at the center of all that? Is Jesus the most important thing to you? about your celebration of Christmas. Can I just give you a couple things as we're about to leave here? Can I just give you a couple things about how to keep Jesus central? One, one thing you can do, uh, well, first of all, we're having a candlelight service this Wednesday. I know you can't all be there, but you wanna come and just be a part of that and bring your family with you. Your family's in town. Oh, I can't come because my family's in town. They're not believers. Fantastic. Let them come see how you worship Jesus and keep him preeminent. We have a service on Christmas morning. Again, it's a later service. It's 11 to 12. I promise you, it's a one-hour service. 11 to 12, we started it late enough that you can have your morning traditions, and, and we're going to get out at noon. Not like today. Don't look at that clock. Uh, but we'll get out at noon that week. But bring your family here, and we're going to preach the gospel message from the shepherds' message that, that they received. 
Unto you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we're going to talk about what that means. You want your family to hear the gospel on Christmas, you bring them Sunday morning, 11 o'clock. But I think the best way to keep Christ central is by leading out yourself in it. When you go, you know, share the Christmas story with your family, read it. And what we learned, just give you a little tip if you got little ones, don't do the Christmas morning uh, reading of the Bible as much as I, we found it better for us to put it on Christmas Eve, and I'll tell you why. Christmas morning, your children are on a Coke-fueled high. They have got their, their stockings, and they've eaten like 15 chocolate bells and two peanut butter trees, and they're just, they're all wired up, and all they can think about is the lust of the eyes. They see all those Christmas presents with their name on it, you know, and they're like, yeah, 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 Christmas story, got it, got it, got it, yeah, let me open. We found, though, on Christmas Eve, our children were saints. They're all like, yes, Father. <laughs> yeah. Please, let me get the family Bible for you, Father. We're so excited for Christmas, and they'll listen, you know. You know go on, regale us with the stories of Luke chapter 2, Father, and tell us what Jesus has done for us. And so what we would do on Christmas Eve, we would get the nativity out, we'd hand out little pieces to the children, and they were being very obedient because Christmas is the next morning, and, and if your children aren't listening, you know, as it's been said, you know, wrap up a couple empty boxes under the tree, and if they're not listening, throw it into the fire. Your child is going to listen to that Christmas story, isn't he? And so you get them to listen, you participate, and you'd go to Luke chapter two, and you share them what Christmas is about and what its meaning is. And you, you let your children know Christ is preeminent in this story. He outstages any celebration of, of Santa. It's not just about watching Will Ferrell in tights. It's not just about all these other funny ha-ha-ha movies, but they need to understand you enjoy all those other trappings of things. That's one thing, but Jesus is always preeminent. You want to know if your child sees that Christmas is preeminent? Ask them the question. Say, let's play an association game. When I say Christmas, what comes to your mind? And your child's going to tell you the truth. If Jesus doesn't figure prominently in that, it's that they don't view Jesus as preeminent in Christmas. And again, that's just a child's perspective, and it could be shaped by a lot of things, but we want to make sure that our child knows he is central. And can I give you one more little tip? A lot of times, we, Christmas is a time when you get together with family that you don't talk to and you don't see the whole rest of the year. You know, people you, you barely know, but you, they're family, so you get together at Christmas time. And many times, our family won't be Christians, won't, will they? But they're going to ask the token Christian to pray for the meal because, frankly, they haven't uttered a prayer since they about got hit by a car. And so they want you to pray. And when you pray, don't just thank God for the hickory honey ham, okay? You pray the gospel in that message. Thank you, Jesus, for Christmas. Your word tells us that you came down because we couldn't go up. We thank you that Jesus took on a body so that he could die in our place. You came at a dark time when we were in our sins, and we know, God, that being a good God, you have to judge sins, but we want to give thanks this Christmas that Jesus died in our place, that he was born to die, that he came and lived a life we couldn't live so that when he died, he'd die for our sins and not his own. We thank you that in him we have hope, that if we have faith in him, that we'll have eternal life through him, that he has made us right with you, and thank you for the hickory honey ham. Okay, you go ahead, and, but pray the gospel in there. Utilize these opportunities. It's one of the few times in your life where your whole family is going to sit and wait on every word you say because they're hungry. Use that as a time for the gospel. Keep Jesus central to what we, you know, to what we do. Let's just pause and reflect. How are we gonna do that? What's Christmas, keeping Jesus at the center of my Christmas gonna look like? 
And then we have to also have to ask ourselves the question, is Jesus preeminent in our life? Because if Jesus is preeminent in my heart, like I from the heart wanna honor him in all that I do, making Jesus a preeminent part of your Christmas isn't gonna be a tack on. It's not gonna be something I do out of guilt. It's not gonna be do something because the pastor told me to do it. It's gonna be something I want to do because he is first rank in my spirit and in my heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning as we study Colossians 1. We, we just read about the beauty and the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Father, there's so much in this world that's, that's just attractive and it's shiny and it makes noises and it gets our attention and it's fun. But God, help us not to make our life just about the pursuit of fun things and trying to maintain happiness based on happenings just trying to make our life uh, enjoyable and pleasurable. Help us to see that there is joy beyond just seeking what's pleasurable. I pray this, uh, this morning, God, that if there's anybody here who does not know Jesus, that they would not leave this place without knowing that they've been made right with the Father, that their sins have been forgiven, that they can have, a, for the first time in their life, a truly preeminent Christmas, a Christmas in which Christ is central to their celebration, central to their thoughts, central to their desires, so that when we serve him, when we give, when we come, when we uh, share with others, it's not just out of a sense of religious duty. It's because there's a longing in our heart that's pushing and driving us. I pray that for each soul who's here today, God, may Christ be preeminent in our church, in our homes, in our Christmas celebration, we ask in his name. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.